Welcome to Donne Talks, provided to you by Donne Women in Music. I am your host, Gabriela Dilaccio, and in every episode I interview guests who are amplifying change. People who are using their voices and their positions to create bigger impact in our society. Today's guest is Taiwanese-American conductor Mei Yan Chen. Praised for her dynamic, passionate conducting style, Mei Yan is acclaimed for infusing orchestras with energy, enthusiasm and high-level music-making, galvanizing audiences and communities alike. I was bawling like a kid and it made me realize that is a privilege and an honor to have the gift to be able to create something meaningful and beautiful with others. So regardless of there was no opportunity that I promised myself that one day if I were given the opportunity to be on the podium, I will treasure it to conduct it like it's the last time I get to share music with others. She is the music director of the Chicago Sinfonietta since 2011. She is also the first ever principal guest conductor of Austria's recreation Grosses Orchester Graz and the first ever artistic partner of Houston's River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. She also has served as artistic director and conductor for the National Taiwan Symphony Orchestra Summer Festival since 2016. Highly regarded as a compelling communicator and an innovative leader both on and off the podium, as well as a sought-after guest conductor, Mei Yan Chen continues to expand her relationships with orchestras all over the world. Welcome, Mei Yan. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you. And I wanted to say it's such an honor uh, to get to know what you have done, Gabriella, in terms of your work championing for women composers, what your organization Donne has done. And I want to thank our uh, lovely friend that put us in touch, Miriam Kirby, probably watching it from The Hague. Thank you so much for putting us in touch. And this is um, a subject that's very dear to my heart in terms of championing for di diversity, inclusion, and specifically women composers. Can you tell us a little bit a resume of your musical journey? How was it for you? Because I know you were a violinist first and pianist. How did you transition, you know, this move from Taiwan to America, the cultural shock, I can imagine, and yeah. then the brave decision into going into the conducting field? Can you tell us? Absolutely. I try to do a, di a Reader's Digest version of my yes. <laughs> can story. Imagine. You know, my my music journey was literally my life journey and conducting really has brought me to many places to meet many people I never thought possible growing up in Taiwan. I grew up with parents and sister who love music uh, and my parents really didn't have chance for music education as they grew up under the occupancy of Japanese. And so their dream was to give their two daughters opportunities they didn't have. And, and I'll be honest with you, Gabby, if my mother could have been trained musically, she was definitely going to be an opera diva. There was no question about it. She's still <laughs> dreaming about my orchestra accompany her singing. I, I'm like, it's a little hard uh, with the distance and everything. And so they had my sister take up the violin and me the piano. 
Uh, but my wonderful sister, four years older than me, really was more of a visual artist. She wanted to create in her own space versus informing instruments, you need to share that in time with others. So yeah. I always thank her for giving me the double duties of entertaining my parents oh. because my parents thought having the two daughters take up instrument was the easiest way to have free concert at home every day. They were way too naive. And so um, I took up piano at seven, violin as seven and a half, and then the light bulb moment came for me when I play in the orchestra for the first time at age 10. Um, I was rather shy because, you know, my mother, between my mother and my sister, my, my dad and me, we were the quiet ones in the family. And so I remember seeing this person on the podium pulling all this sound together in the room. And that's the light bulb moment for me. I ran home and told my parents, piano and violin are fun, but I really want to be a conductor to play the largest instrument in the room. They frowned, look worried, and they said, we don't, we don't know where to, where to find your teacher. I mean, they were absolutely right. Uh, conducting as a degree in Taiwan doesn't really start until much later. And so I didn't take no for an answer. And so this is lesson number one for all those budding conductors out there listening. Uh, don't let people tell you you can't do anything because here's an example. I was 10, I was stubborn to determined to learn something that I believe was my way of expressing without sound, uh, without actually talking, but with as much sound as possible. And so I would show up at rehearsals having my violin part memorized, given that it's very easy music. And then I would just fix my eyes on the conductors. And he looked around. I was the only kid looking up. And so he, he thought I was the best student, not knowing <laughs> I was trying to steal his crap at age 10. Yeah, so I on for a couple years, and then a youth orchestra from America, uh, from New England Conservatory, uh, under the direction of uh, Benjamin Zander, took a tour to Taiwan and Korea uh, when I was uh, 16. This is in the late 80s. I went backstage. My, my older accompanist took me backstage to meet the conductor. I could barely speak English, but she somehow managed to ask him, could you listen to this little girl play the violin next day? So Mr. Zender said, oh yeah, yeah, come. So I show up nine o'clock at the hotel, the orchestra already uh, checked out, ready to move to the next town. The hotel was completely booked. The only place quiet enough for me to play for him was this closed bar in the basement. So I played my Winiowski concerto so much and from you, the heart without the piano, with the smell of beer. I mean, nothing was ideal, but he saw this very rare musicality. I guess, you know, he's, he's, he had seen a lot of Asian students, but we, we all grew up with a lot of tiger moms, practice, practice. And so I wasn't practicing for my parents anymore. In middle school, actually, one of my classmates is, is watching. I got a special permission from school out of 5,000 students. I was excused from the required afternoon nap. We all need to like put our head down for half an hour because it's tropical weather. And the practice time became mine because I feel very special. Instead of taking a nap, I got to practice 
in the oh library. That was like my time. And so when music became mine, there was no question about music being the, the form to express who I can be, who I want to be. And so when Mr. Zender saw this in me, and he saw me sawing away on Winniowski, he asked my parents, would they be willing to let me pursue a, a violin degree in Boston? He will try to find scholarship for me. And that How was- you? My, How old were you? I was 16. So literally, that was fulfilling my parents' dream. They always wanted me to be a concert violinist. And so they said yes. And so two months later, I arrived in Boston, not knowing, actually, I tricked my parents into giving me a ticket to come to America so I can finally learn conducting. I mean, I, I really tricked them. And so I, I started to do a lot of conducting in undergrad. Um, I was, I think at that point, there wasn't a undergrad degree in conducting, but I would use my violin scholarship to uh, to have my wonderful classmates as, as the guinea pigs of my orchestra. You know, I would put Chinese Pollock out to feed them and say, come and play for me. And so I started to conduct quite a bit in terms of composers needing their work conducted. It's uh -huh. always yes, doesn't matter how terrible the piece was. That was a chance for me to get <laughs> practice on my own ensemble. Yeah. And so life went on and I thought, okay, if I've gotten double masters, one for my parent on violin, one for myself on conducting, I should be able to find a job. And to my biggest surprise, out of New England Conservatory, double degrees, I was the first to have gotten both. I couldn't find anybody to give me a, a chance to audition. And so I thought, okay, well, I need to stay in America. So I applied for a doctorate. Uh, degree and I landed up in the hardest curriculum out of all my schools is University of Michigan. They only accepted one doctorate degree student each year because we were given to be assistant professors leading a ensemble of our own that uh, comprised of uh, musicians in non-music major uh, departments. Mm -hmm. And so we have physics uh, science majors uh, that have been playing violin or instruments their whole life. They just decided not to pursue music degree. They were great players, some of them even better than the music majors. So that was my first uh, music directorship experience, having to audition the whole orchestra. There's a budget. Uh, and also what opened me up in terms of conducting was conducting opera. Because I really have to put myself in tune with what the singers are doing on stage and to really pull that together. So many people, you know, on stage, in the pit and being in the music. I think that's when I've merged the two personalities I had. This just really expressive way of playing the violin. And, you know, I was always very clear as a conductor before then, but really for me, conducting isn't about just clarity. It is about being the music, as you mentioned. So I thought here, I've gotten all the degrees. There's the get. I've got a, you know, <laughs> a doctoral candidate uh, out of University of Michigan. And to my biggest surprise, the amount of rejection letters were more than the notes I ever conducted. 
So God. I almost gave up after dreaming about it for um, for 18 years. I was 28 at this point, and my parents were pressuring me to go back home to teach violin in Taiwan. Well, my sisters, um, again, being the true heroine in the story, uh, and my uh, brother-in-law said, please just hold on to your dream a little longer. Don't give up just as yet. And so I remember having to teach uh, 20, 20 to 40, at, at one point, 40 beginners um, on piano and violin uh, through Suzuki methods. And yeah. believe me, I love touch, uh, teaching, but if you have to teach twinkle, twinkle 40 times, I can assure you, it really tests your, uh, yeah. your passion for music in terms mm -hmm. of how Persistency, yeah. And so I was exhausted to try to make ends meet and I did everything. I did people's yard, I cleaned people's houses, I did videotaping for the law department. I did everything to hold on to my dream and trying to support myself. And then one day I was so exhausted from teaching and I was so dry. It's been a year and a half since my candidacy that I wasn't able to perform at all because once you achieve the candidacy you're sort of out of the program oh, and i myself i got to drag myself into the concert hall where it nourishes my soul so it was second half of a symphonic concert at the hill auditorium i mean believe me we we have had yo-yo ma twice a year twice or not twice a year went through twice uh, berlin phil on you know the university of michigan society is very strong in bringing all these guest artists but it wasn't even a famous group i think it was just a university ensemble performing and second half of the program starts with tchaikovsky's pathetic symphony uh -huh. And this was a moment I remember for the rest of my life because I sat down, exhausted, and wondering what's going to happen to my dream, my musical you know, career possibility. And I heard the bassoon solo at the beginning of that. And I played, I've conducted before, but never before. I heard that bassoon and understood the despair that Tchaikovsky was writing. Um, for his own challenges in his life. And I was bawling like a kid. And it made me realize that is a privilege and an honor to have the gift to be able to create something meaningful and beautiful with others. So regardless of there was no opportunity that I promised myself that one day, if I were given the opportunity to be on the podium, I will treasure it to conduct it like it's the last time I get to share music with others. And so that moment really stayed with me in the ups and downs of my career, of this passion to understand that we are giving a mission to share yeah. something that's not so tangible in someone's mind in terms of my parents giving me a hard time. You can make a living as a conductor, but I tried to tell them it was my calling to really express, to really bring others together uh, through the universal power of music. And that was the art form for me. And I was very grateful to have gone through that difficult, uh, difficult transitional time. So I don't take any performing opportunities for granted later. 
So I'll pause for a second since you know that that was a long Reader's Digest version. No, no, it's wonderful. It's it's really wonderful. But I, you know, I come from a very small town in Brazil as well, and I, I I had I had the same sort of calling from a very very young age with the most absurd background with no musicians. So I had the opposite of you. I had no push, no, and I had this this thing. And I remember uh, watching operas on TV, you no, know, from Covent Garden as a child, and having this music transporting me and and it's amazing because it's exactly as you say uh, when you have this inside of you it's almost like you have it's, it's your job as as a person in, in on earth to share this beauty with others and if you don't yeah. do that you're never yourself fully I think as an artist and the moment uh, because I think we and I'm sure you still have moments when you are down and up. We all have as artists. It, it never really gets to a point when we are all oh, okay. Now it's all fantastic, and in those moments of challenge, we have this precious gift, which is the music that we have to share. And I feel very privileged as well for knowing what I wanted to do very young. Although yeah. it sounds really crazy, you know, it's like a bit like you, 10, 10 years old, I'm going to be a conductor. And you don't even realize, oh, I'm a woman and uh, I can't really see me like that out there. So it's really inspirational. So it's, I love the long version. Don't worry about it. So we're going to have to move to how did you end up with this wonderful orchestra, uh, the Chicago Sinfonietta. But if you would first, before anything, share with us the story of the birth of this orchestra. Yes. So uh, Maestro Paul Freeman, our uh, beloved founder, encountered Dr. Martin Luther King when he was arriving in Atlanta airport to get ready to conduct the Atlanta Symphony. And that encounter with Dr. King inspired Maestro Paul Freeman to start um, an orchestra in the nation, first orchestra in the nation that is mostly to champion for diversity and inclusion and to provide opportunities for minority musicians. And so in 1987, in Chicago, Maestro Paul Freeman started the Chicago Sinfonietta, and it has since been the most diverse orchestra in North America. And during his tenure, he has championed for a lot of minority musicians, and you can think of obviously African-American musicians, Latino, Latina musicians. The minority angle applies to guest artists, composers, orchestra members. We have very interesting mix of ethnic background, probably more than any other orchestra in the country right now. And also one other famous trademark that Maestro Paul Freeman was able to achieve was through innovative programming because he thought we perform at the home of the Chicago Symphony, we have to be different. And one way to attract the audiences was by doing things really outside the box. Some of you might remember reading this. I was a young conductor working in Portland, Oregon as my first music director position job leading America's oldest youth orchestra, the Portland Youth Philharmonic. And I remember reading New York Times and thinking, what a crazy orchestra. This was before the cell phone became a household item. And the Chicago Sinfonietta commissioned a concertino 
for cell phone and orchestra and invited audience member to participate. And that, I literally was thinking, this, this orchestra is crazy. Not knowing years later, they have they invited me as a guest to conduct a sort of an East meets West program uh, to bring to Chicago sort of an interesting version of the Butterfly Lovers violin concerto, but having the soloist playing on the Erhu, the Chinese violin. And so that was my main audition program. And, and that was the longest of long shot in terms of successors to Maestro Paul Freeman. Nobody thought that there's any possibility for an Asian woman, com uh, woman conductor to succeed Paul Freeman and to everybody's surprise. I mean, I fell in love with the orchestra five minutes into the first rehearsal. Yeah. It's like, wow, this orchestra is so unique. Everybody feels like family. I mean, it wasn't like business as you know usual. It was like, hey, how are you doing? You know, what, what, you know, how is, how are your kids? It's just there's this very tight family feel that Maestro Freeman created with these musicians. That some of them are still founding members of our group from 30, wow. 32 years ago, and so thirty three years ago now, and so it, it's it has been um, incredible orchestra for me to realize the mission of championing for diversity, inclusion, and equity just fall into my lap. And this really made me think of my own struggle, my journey, paralleling many of minority musicians' struggle. And I have to say that this is one of the most blessings I've been given as a musician to really find out what are minority musicians or subjects or genres that we could really help champion? And so leading to the historic moment of Maestro Freeman passing his baton in his last official concert with Chicago Sinfonietta, and he wanted to design it as a program only featuring women composers because he felt women composers were still very much a neglected group of minority in our country. And we have taken that to really dream with our musicians. Yeah. What are the big dreams for our 30th anniversary? That's about you know two seasons ago. And so this idea of that's champion for Project W. Let's have women composers sprinkle. We have nine women works by women composers uh, over five major concerts. Night works out of 20 works out of a season. You do the map, the percentage is blowing that percentage at that season. I think overall in America was less than 2% of yeah. entire repertoire performed by symphony orchestras were by women composers. So we were blowing that right out of the water. And we yeah. also found a, a wonderful partner in SETI Records founded by Jim Ginsberg, whose mother is my personal heroine, oh, you know, RBT. I know, I know. Justice, uh, her, tell her I love her. That's it. RGB. Justice Proof, um, <laughs> Bader Ginsburg. I mean, what are the coincidences? And so, when Jim Ginsburg at Sandy Records heard about this Project W, he immediately signed on, and we just moved it forward to capture uh, four commissions plus a work by Florence Price, who became the first African American woman composer in the country when Chicago Symphony premiered her symphony. 
number one in 1933. And so we just thought, why not put her dances in the game breaks? Uh, a 10 minute short piece yeah. com consists of three wonderful dances, something that that was a, a war premiere recording. It was arranged by her friend, William Grant Still, because the piece was written at the end of her life to capture indigenous African rhythm. And I'm sure she was capable of orchestrating it, but you know, she died of a stroke suddenly in, in 1953. And so I'm grateful for William Grant Still to make this piece into a orchestra arrangement. And so we recorded it. I wanted it to be available for other orchestras to listen. And if they don't have the space to program Florence Price Symphony, which is more of the 40 minutes range, they could introduce Florence Price in their community with this cute uh, three dances um, as a begin, uh, as an introduction of Florence Price. So yeah, well, I am really fortunate to, to have found Chicago Sinfonietta. If you are enjoying this podcast, there are three simple things you can do to support our work. First, subscribe. This way you will never miss an episode. Second, tell about us to a friend or family member. You will always have someone to share the stories of this interview. And this way we can raise awareness and inspire more people in our way. Third, Give us a review on iTunes or whatever other channel you subscribe. This way you will be helping others to find our podcast. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Mei-Yan Chen. So when did you start with the Chicago Sinfonietta? Which year was that? I started officially in September of 2011. Yeah. So I've been with the group uh, for, for close to 10 years now. Yeah. So until that moment, or maybe a little bit before, when you came in contact with them and Maestro Paul Freeman, how much of the female composers and all these uh, underrepresented composers and artists were you aware in your musical education? And how much becoming such a fantastic a collaboration between you and, and Chicago changed your vision or in my case for me it was like when this Pandora box opened for me you can never unsee what you, right. you know now and then you just uh, so how was it for you so let me talk about two big fate changing opportunities for me so the the first one I I have to thank the Danish people, I, I feel I have adapted Scandinavian because I was trying to stay in the country. As you heard, I was music director of the PYP in Oregon, but I had a, a visa issue. I couldn't stay in the country after 9-11. They changed the rules for, for green car requirement. So this is true story. I'm not making this up. My lawyer said to me, man, you only have two choices. It used to be if you have a doctorate degree, you it's easy to get your green card. But now after 9-11, they make it much more, more difficult. So you either marry an American, which will get you easier, faster green card, or you go win an international competition. And so I didn't know oh. which was harder at that time, but I went for the competition. And the, the, the tiny husband one. <laughs> I didn't have time to date. So it was like the competition was an easy choice. So I won for the Malco competition in 2005. 
I was among the 30 out of 242 applicants from 40 countries in the world. I was just glad to be invited to the live audition round. There were four rounds. I went from 30 down to the final three. I could not believe it. I didn't tell my parents about it because my father has high blood pressure and I didn't want it, his blood pressure to be roller coasting with the competition. And so when I, when the biggest lottery I won in my life was to become the first woman to ever won the Malco competition. I was completely American trained. There's no European tie whatsoever. I couldn't afford to go to Europe to take master classes and, and so forth. And so this was really opening doors I never thought possible. And so here comes the next period of my interesting professional career. I, I cry for, day, for, for weeks giving up my kids. I have a, about a thousand kids oh, in the world that I call my kids from the, the youth orchestra time. And I really have to give that up to become assistant conductor of, uh, well, first an Oregon symphony that was at the same time as my youth orchestra, but then it took me away from Portland to be assistant with Atlanta symphony and then Baltimore symphony assisting Marin Alsip for one year before my music directorship came. And so when I was assisting Robert Spannell, a music director of Atlanta Symphony, and also Marinals in Baltimore, these two cities have about 60% of the population being African-Americans. And it was my first time being, being connected to very different ethnic background, you know, in those particular cities. And so, I had to research as an assistant conductor, research works that connect to that very particular community, African-American community specifically. And I needed to prep myself in terms of who are, who, who have been those black composers over the years. So Chicago Sinfonietta became my number one source with the African-American heritage series produced by SETI Records again. And so I've been using that incredible source. I wish we had, you know, uh, Rob Deemer's uh, <laughs> extensive uh, yes, repertoire. Yeah. Then, but, you know, I, I didn't have that. And so I had to uh, literally use Sinfoniata as um, a, a wonderful source. And so I was aware of Sinfoniata that way. But it really was about having the experience of working directly with Sinfoniata's team and equipping myself in terms of what's been done, that piqued my curiosity about, well, how about who else is out there that we haven't have a chance to champion? And I stumbled onto Florence Prize because my first music directorship, even before Sinfonietta, was with uh, Memphis Symphony, and we were going to do a semi-ballet uh, production and it had very unusual instrumentation with Burnside's undertone, you know, two trombones, one saxophone. And I stumbled onto Florence Price, Dances in the Kimbricks. And that also, actually, uh, at the same time, Chicago Symphony, I have Chicago Symphony to thank because Marta Gilmore, who was the main programmer at the time, invited me to make subscription debut with Chicago Symphony. Now you can see the panic in my eye when she said, man, how about Florence Price, Mississippi River Suite 
since you have the Memphis connection. And I didn't, you know, that was actually the very first I have heard about Florence Price. And then that really piqued my interest into finding out more of her work and having a chance to actually start doing a lot of her works. And that jump start sort of this journey about, okay, other than Florence Price, who else? I mean, so we have, you know, I have a long relationship with Jennifer Hickton since I assisted the recording, her recording of The Singing Room with Jenny Coe, uh, Jennifer Coe on the violin and Atlanta Symphony, Atlanta Symphony Chorus. And so I asked Jennifer, could we be a co-commission to your new piece for strings dance card? And she was so gracious and so generous. And then we also find, uh, we also found Clarice, Clarice Assad, the daughter of the Assad brothers. Who yeah, exactly. Grew up in Chicago, still now living in Chicago. I mean, she moved away and moved back. And so we commissioned her Sinfantera Without Borders for her to be able to utilize her Brazilian, South American, traveling through North American, using different musical genres to create this wonderful piece on Project W Recordings. Uh, we have also found at that point, we definitely need to find living African-American woman composer. And we found Jessie Montgomery. Uh, she wrote a new piece for us. And then we also, I befriended Rena Esmail through oh, yes. other wonderful work. Uh, I am serving as the first artistic partner of the River Oaks Chamber Orchestra, uh, the most fun group I've ever seen in the country in terms of, you know, they work so intimately like a chamber orchestra, it, basically a chamber musicians always having so much fun. And the founder of that group, Alicia Lawyer, who is also the principal oboe, uh, wanted to commission something from Rina Esmail, who, who grew up in Los Angeles, but with heritage from India and have studied in India and, and created this string piece called uh, Tin Morti, really capturing morphing the traditional Indian music and Western um, music idiom. And so I, uh, we included Rina's uh, Tim Morty in Project W. Uh, it was fantastic way for us to explore the first attempt on Tivali Festival that basically is the festival of lights for the Hindu yeah. traditions. And so we, we found that Project W was able to give us angle into including diverse groups of women composers. And we had a heck of time, a heck of fun time and also challenging time of putting very different but great pieces together. But basically the recordings are captured through our RCs and then that's why it was only released in yeah. March of 2019. But we're proud of that work and, and we're continuing to do. For example, I wanna talk about, we, we just sprinkled the women composers work across the season, but we dedicated the March program, which is the, uh, the Women's Month historically, we had a program that we just basically, the whole teams holding hands saying, Kambawa, we're gonna jump off the cliff together because we titled that 
program honoring women composers as Hear Me Roar. And if I redo the composers list of that program, we had to prepare ourselves that basically no one was going to come to the hall. So we had four <laughs> dances in the Cambrakes, Jennifer Hickman dance car premiere in Chicago. Rena Esmel was writing a new work at that time. She changed the title to Me Too, and we were 120% supportive of her embracing that movement. And then Dora Pejecevic, Symphony in F-sharp minor. It was like, our musician was like, who's this? Dora yeah. Pejecevic is the first symphonic composer in Croatia. She happened to be a woman, only lived to her 30s because she, had, she died of complications after giving birth to her only son. And so we did, we asked our intern to do a worldwide Google search about mm -hmm. women composers. Yeah. Um, and this, this came on that radar. And I listened to the link and I'm like, wow, I'm hearing Strauss, I'm hearing Bruckner, I'm hearing Mahler. Who is this lady? And so when we brought this to Chicago, it was 100 years since its complete premiere in Munich. And it, it, was, it, was, it, was a, it was a daring attempt for us. And I can tell you the wonderful thing is somehow our audience trusted us and our yeah. board member used this as a, an opportunity to pair it with her uh, woman executive symposium kind of thing. And we, she brought 150 uh, of her colleagues who has never stepped foot in a concert hall along with our diehard fans. We actually have much bigger, we have the biggest pride individual sale of the season that year because of this program. And I can tell you, I mean, we were ready to do art by art's sake. I mean, if it were like 100 people in the hall, we're going to still perform that to our best ability. But to have a hall responding to us with every piece, not knowing what it's going to sound like, and yet loving it at the end, the whole hall cheering for women composers. I mean, I still I still could see that scene when talking about it. So I, we're very encouraged. We're going to continue our Project W extension. That's amazing. And it's something that people ask me as if I would know, because I'm, I'm, I'm a singer, so I don't have artistic powers. But because of the project, people ask me this question and they ask me, oh, so why, why isn't this music being played in, in major orchestras? And uh, I'm going to ask you this question later, but I always thought that it would be so easier for big organizations to introduce this music as you suggested. No, take one piece and if you're doing Beethoven's fifth and then you just introduce a new piece and, and do this throughout the year. Because from my experience, since I started to including music by diverse composers in my concerts, it's amazing the, the response that the public has. You know? The public wants to hear it. And, and I think the fear of selling tickets, of course, we all understand that. But if you can do that, you know, I can see the excitement you had. And, and I have the same one every time I'm researching new pieces because you find these amazing stories and, and music and art. And you, it's almost like it's your, you have to share it. You know? So yeah. what would be your advice from, from the experience you, you have as a conductor and also as part of as an artistic director to other artistic directors out there who are afraid of challenging the audiences, what is your advice or what's your first like comment to them? 
You know, it's interesting because now I have gotten a lot of, well, I wouldn't say a lot, but quite a few engagements, particularly wanting me to bring this woman composer's expertise uh, to their orchestra. So my, my suggestions would be, you know, find a way how the Sinfonietta have done it is uh, since we only have five major programs, each one as a pair at downtown uh, West suburban area, we basically craft each program to have a narrative behind the pieces to make them connect. And so I would suggest to people who are afraid out there to really be, be open to provide just a small space. If it's just a five minute opener that you feel comfortable or 10 minute space, like overture-ish, then I will say, look what's been there. Like Rob Demir's um, search allows you to search for specific geographic, ethnicity, ear, so many details that you can find. So if you are looking for a very specific connection that you can find out these pieces and give it a chance. Because I think what we learn is that if you just ask audience, what do you want to listen for? I mean, they're going to only give you pieces yeah. they know. And so it, it is our job to help stretch their comfort zone in a very reasonable pace, obviously, to perhaps say, hey, listen to this. I mean, it's not the first time we have done Jennifer Higdon's piece. Yeah. In fact, I think we have done Jennifer Higdon's pieces much more in advance of Chicago Symphony's uh, invitation of her, but we are happy for that. And so it's introducing bits of you know, and that's why I want the dancers in the Kim breaks to be available uh, for other orchestras so they could say, hey, this is, if you want it, for example, I brought dancers in the Kim breaks recently to BB, to my debut in BBC Symphony in London. And I tried to tell them, look, uh, Florence Price actually came as far as UK before she, you know, before her stroke uh, in the 50s. And when we were playing this, I got so many comments about, oh, this is like Joplin, this, you know, a little bit ragtime. And they're trying to make their own sense of it and really enjoying it. And when I brought it to my new position in Graz, uh, I I'm serving as the first principal guest conductor of the recreation Grosses uh, Orchestra Graz. I brought to them, I said, you want American music? Here's one that is rarely done. And when I brought it to them, and the musicians were finding ways to groove. You know, they're so good at Viennese groove and to find sort of a way for the American groove. I mean, it was actually easy for them to find that. And so I think now, now actually, I get to be, I get to be asked. To, to premiere so many women composers all over the place. You know, in Graz, uh, we will be next season, will be, this is even a premiere for them. We will be premiering Austrian woman composer by the name of Johanna Müller Hermann, who studied with the big teacher at the time, alongside with contemporary of Strauss, and a little bit later, obviously, for Bruckner and Mahler. But you hear her hero overture 
that is just incredible writing, symphonic poem. And when I was talking to the, the chief of orchestra there, Mr. Hooper, he was fascinated that his father, who was an oboist with the Vienna Philharmonic, studied with the same teacher, might actually have known this woman composer. But her, she was forgotten basically when the World War came that she was just literally forgotten. And so, you know, I didn't really start out by saying woman, it's my thing. But I think that as musicians, I mean, as much as we love Beethoven, Tchaikovsky, that is wonderful to also be the voice of the unheard. You know, Fanny Mendelssohn, uh, Clara Schumann. Yeah, Amy Beach in America. I mean, there's so many women's music that reflected uh, their time, their struggle, their expressions, their hope for the world. And it's wonderful to give voices to those unheard. Uh, I'm going to ask people if they want to ask you a question. But before, you wanted to talk about some amazing initiatives for female conductors as well. If you want to talk about that, Lovely. I can share that with people. Lovely. Uh, let me talk about my mentor, Marin Alsop, who founded the Kakaki Fellowship more than a decade ago to really have launched about uh, the Taki Concordia Fellowship. Yes, thank you. Have really helped launch 20-some women conductors' uh, career in the world. Several of them are also connected to, there's a epicenter of women artist that's happening in Dallas. For example, the Dallas Opera, in collaboration with the Heart Institute, has uh, in several seasons have also launched many women conductors' career. I know some of you watching uh, were participants of that, but also the Dallas Symphony has, let me get this right, the Dallas Symphony has to, sorry, I, you may have it more the correct heart, there. Heart. Yes, the, the Dallas Opera, but also I think the Dallas Symphony has produced several women con, con, uh, conductors that were also in the Taki Fellowship, but there, there's a, a woman, I'm so sorry, I don't have this memorized. There's a woman initiative that's happening with the Dallas Symphony. Uh, let me see, Women in Classical Music Symposium. That's, that's happening with the Dallas Symphony. And so between all these programs, has really helped women conductors to come to the forefront. But I also like to mention Chicago Sinfonietta's own Freeman uh, Fellowship, which has produced the most number of fellows in the country for fellows that consisted of uh, musicians of color. And so we have instrumentalists, we have conductors, we have administrators, and, and among about 10 conducting fellows since we expanded to include that in 2014. We have produced about 10 young conductors out there who secure staff positions with professional orchestras. And among them, we have, you know, a couple women, Kalina Bovell, assistant conductor with the Memphis Symphony, Diana Tham, 
assistant conductor with the Jacksonville Symphony. We have a current uh, fellow from Puerto Rico. Uh, we also have another opera fellow. She is music director of a small opera company here in Chicago and being a guest conductor over the country. And so it's, you know, I, I like people to continue supporting these wonderful endeavors yeah. because they are creating a safe and encouraging environment to allow this woman to find their own voices, to believe that it is possible in a bigger environment when it says it's really not possible. So I applaud for all these wonderful programs and their- wrote is National Symposium for Women in Classical Music. That's the other project that we we didn't. Yeah, Thank you. Exactly. Yeah, Alicia Lawyer, who is the 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 incredible heroine behind Rocco River Oaks Chamber Orchestra, literally wanted to create more opportunity for herself and also her colleagues across the, the country that she created this. So my advice for young women artist leaders out there is number one, you got to believe that is possible. Don't let anyone else tell you that it's not possible. And second, to find that passion that is so strong, you cannot live without it. As my violin teacher, Mary Lou Speaker Churchill, who was my first violin teacher in the country, who was one of the first women principals among major orchestras in America, and she would one thing she said to me is, man, you really want to pursue music? Then let me ask you, can you live without it? That was it. She didn't say, do you want to do this, that, that, that. And so I think when you have enough passion, the passion will lead you to create possibilities within impossibilities. So Mr. Gender's book, I encourage to recommend to everyone to read it, The Art of Possibilities. is a in, in very inspiring book about thinking outside the box. Because in this day and age, there's no set path in any of our career. But I think to be brave, to create your own path, to find your own passion. And last thing I will recommend is your the passion that I just talked about is twofold. It's what you are passionate, what gets you up in the morning and feel like life has meanings. But that passion has to be big enough to impact more people. It's not just, well, I so love Beethoven, but how about making Beethoven accessible in whatever ways? You know, I remember Memphis Symphony did sort of Beethoven fifth, but in sort of a rapping kind of style with a local rap rap artist. I mean, it's a little bit outside the box, but when you have the will, then it's possible to find ways to fulfill your dream. Wow, that's really, really amazing, Mayan. We can't forget and to mention the, the sadness of this week and yeah. hope that we don't have to wait for tragedy or we don't have to wait for March or we don't have to wait for, uh, you know, Black American Histories Month to right. think that we should do something about diversity or we should do something about inclusion. Uh, 
and you you are one of the people doing it in your life on a daily basis but i don't know if you agree with me i feel like the classical music world is very slow in embracing and i think yeah. it's not really a choice anymore it's kind of we we have to do it that's how i feel it because if we don't do it you're opting to feed all this bad awful things that are happening around us so it's almost like by by omission you're agreeing with not promoting the underrepresented so what else can we do you were already doing it but well what i i will, I will love for you gabby thank you so much for bringing this very key point to end our talk today um so i wanted people to see that if it's possible for one orchestra in chicago to do this that's about 58 percent of our programming of chicago sinfonietta championing for musicians, uh, championing for uh, composers of color, basically 58%. So this is my, this is my way of encouraging everybody. If it is possible for Chicago Sinfonietta to have found a way to be relevant to our community and to garnered awards and, and recognition such as from the MacArthur Foundation in 2016, we were given about $650,000, what so-called the Genius Grant, to really recognize what we have done. And so I think if one orchestra could have done it, please use us as an example. And let me mention, if you, uh, if I have a 30-second, you know, on that same graph, Uh, the other side is percentage of women composers being programmed. And the number one on the list was River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. Uh, I think it was a tie with Albany Symphony and then Sinfonietta, Chicago Sinfonietta being number two. And so I think I find that these two organizations that I'm involved with, they're trying to be relevant for our time. And I think I would encourage all the orchestras out there listening to have the courage, not only because it's the right thing to do, but really it's is great thing for our musicians, our community to have a diverse wide range of composers available for them. And so I think we need to reflect our times, our communities and our music should do that. And you will find reward for doing that. Certainly. Mayan, thank you so much once again. And I hope we meet again many, many times in person and this way as well, if we may. For listeners wanting to know more about Donne and everything we do, please check our website on www.donne-uk.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes to subscribe. And while you're there, it would be great if you could rate and review the show and spread the word on social media. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to be with you in our next interview.